It's a heavy sermon. I, I hope I don't preach it. I'm not feeling very morose tonight, but that's a, it's a heavy subject. And so what we just read from our secondary standard, which we are a confessional church. Um, we, we live in an anti-doctrinal age, in my opinion, just my opinion. Low ecclesiology, anti-doctrinal, anti-intellectual. I like confessional churches, whatever stripe. So I like to know what kind of cookies are in the cookie jar. And so a lot of churches, if they go by non-denom, and I'm not picking on non-denoms, I've been to non-denom, all a non-denom does is they make you go long enough to figure out their, their doctrinal distinctives. Everyone has a doctrinal distinctive. I like when a church is conscientious enough, they write it down. Everybody says we believe the Bible. The question is, what do you believe about the Bible? And so many churches are confessional. They say, this is what we think on church discipline. This is a church discipline section. Um, the business of excommunication and so on. And they write it down. And then oftentimes they give the proofs, the scripture proofs. I like, I like that. There was a time I didn't like that, but I was younger in the faith. Um, okay, so we're in Numbers chapter 5. Really, it says 5 through 10, but really this is kind of um, the second sermon on 5, 1 through 4, actually. Um, but I'm going to bring in the other portions. And then I promise I'm not dodging um, uh, chapter 5, 11 through the end on the adulterous woman, the test. I, I promise I'm not dodging. It's a hard, that, that's a hard passage, that section. And my intention, it might not work out this way, my intention next week, Lord willing, is to pick that up. And I kind of already know how I'm going to go at it. I want to look at the sanctity of marriage. Proactively, it's to be a picture of Christ in the church. So the, so the positive. And then obviously we'll get to the infidelity, which is that section, which is the negative. But that at least is my intention. So I, but, but I need a little bit to, to work through that. Okay, let's look at our passage, Numbers 5. If you, if you have a Bible, just open up your Bible. And so read along with me as I read. Numbers chapter 5, this is part of the Pentateuch of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 1, hear God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper, everyone having a discharge, everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside of the camp so that they will not defile the camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside of the camp. Just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, thus the sons of Israel did. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins of mankind, and look at the next phrase, because that's important for us, and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, that person is guilty. He shall confess his sins, which he has committed. He shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it. Give it to him whom he's wronged. But... If the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the rim of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his, meaning the priest, for his sustenance. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our Father. You are the Father of lights, the Father of mercies, eternally the Father of Christ, which is a mystery of mysteries. And you are our Father by virtue of the gracious adoption we enjoy in Christ, your Son, our Savior. 
Help me, Almighty God, as we consider the um, weighty and frightening subject of being sent away from your holy presence and being separated from abiding with your holy people. Uh, give us all, Lord God, the requisite faith to, uh, to hear your word, uh, to tremble at your warnings, and to freely and joyfully embrace uh, the promises of eternal life in Christ such that we wouldn't be sent away. Uh, have mercy upon us, Lord God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week what we did, looking at this section, is we considered a couple of things. We considered the holiness of God, which is what this, this entire section is the holiness of God. God is spotless, he's pure, he's undefiled, no shadow, no turning. There, there is no sin with God. I, I don't even like hearing when people s- speculate about the possibility uh, of sin with God. God is, uh, what, the angels fly around the throne, holy, 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 he's holy. So we saw the inherent and essential holiness of God. And then last week from this section, dealing with the three species of inherent sinners, the leper, the bodily discharge, touching of the dead person, we said that man, fallen man, which is man apart from Christ, man apart from grace, is a natural-born sinner. So God is essentially holy in his essence, is ontologically holy, and then man apart from grace is, is a sinner. We're not just bad people, good people that do bad things. We are bad people that do nothing but bad things. Um, even if it looks good to us, we mean before God. And then we saw the holiness of God, sinfulness of man, and then we see God bringing up this business of the ram of atonement, uh, the priesthood, which is what the book of Leviticus is about in shadow. In the book of Hebrews, in Numbers, exegetes that. So if you don't understand Leviticus or this book, read it through the book of Hebrews, and then you'll understand. So when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, it's, it's this. The Ram of Atonement is pointing forward to Jesus. And what Jesus is, is he is God's gracious provision to make unclean sinners clean or holy so we can live with a holy God. That's what, the, that's what that section is about. And what I wanted to deal with to some extent, and I might, might have touched on it briefly, was the business of this sending away business. Send away the unclean sinner. Send away the unclean sinner from two entities. One from God, the holy God, and one from holy God's people. So the unclean is to be separated from the clean. The clean one, God, and the, the other one's made clean by God in Christ, as it were. We need to separate the unclean one, send him away. Now, I used to know what it was in Hebrew. I do know what it was in Greek. So the word for divorce in Greek is afeemi. It means to send away. And then this is why God the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write about when you're unfaithful, you break God's law, he calls that unfaithfulness. So it's an act of spiritual adultery when we sin against God. And then when we get to the next section, he's connecting that. You all are being spiritual adulterers. Now let's talk about physical adultery. So there's a connection. And, and just like the afeemi in Greek is to send away, excommunicate, separate the unfaithful wife from the faithful husband, in the Hebrew, to divorce is literally to send away a wife. That's what it means. Because it was a male-initiated thing. I don't think in the Old Testament epoch the females could initiate divorce, but it was a male-initiated thing. But the notion was to send her away. This is a Hosea chapter 1, a Hosea chapter 2. Send her away. So there's the separation of the un, 
clean one from clean God and from the people of God that are made clean. Does that make sense? So all of these things I want to consider under the general heading of excommunication. Um, the church of my youth, the Roman Catholic Church, has two forms of excommunication. I'll butcher, but it's a larger and a lesser. And I used to know what it was. I'm, I, I'm using excommunication as a general term. I'm not necessarily meeting what specifically occurs in a church, in a, in a church court, church discipline. I just mean conceptually. So that excommunicate, send away, cast away from fellowship, from friendship. That's the idea. Of the person that is not clean, they will be excommunicated, sent away from God. I think it's helpful for us to, even though I don't know why I think it is, but but I do think it is helpful for us to consider it. It's here. I want to connect, maybe in a little bit more of a pointed way, I, I gave a couple of verses that specifically reference the holiness of God. In our day and age, unbelievers, and I'm not using it as a pejorative, I just mean it descriptively, unbelievers, a person that's not Christian, not a Bible believer, nothing like that. So they're conscientiously not a Christian. They know a couple, non-Christians know a couple Bible verses. What are the the famous verses non-Christians know and they always go to? Thou shalt not judge, Matthew 7, and then God is what? Love, 1 John chapter 4. They know those. So as soon as you say, well, you know, the wages of sin is death. Ah, 1 John chapter 4. They don't know where it is, but they say God is love. And then when you say, well, God says send away the unclean sinner, so we have to know who these unclean sinners are. Ah, you're judging. Thou shalt not judge. Those are their pat things. Can you take a Bible verse out of context and therefore it would be used wrongly? Oh, certainly. So they're using it wrongly. There's a wrong discernment, there's a wrong judgment, and then there's a right judgment. And I want us to look at the right judgment. And so when we begin this whole excommunication, I'm calling it practicing the religiously separated life. And what I mean by that is not specifically physically. It may be physically. I mean in our affections. So this is a 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't keep notes, it'll be in my notes. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Be ye separate, says the Lord. I don't mean communes. I mean intellectually separated, separated in our affections, that we're not one with the unbeliever. We're one with God. We're one with God's people. We love the unbeliever. We evangelize the unbeliever. We try to be gracious to the unbeliever. Sometimes we work with them. Sometimes we're married to them, sadly. So we, I don't mean living on a commune. If living on a commune would work, I would live on a commune. But the excommunication Primarily, what I want to talk about is the internal practicing. Is this clean or is this unclean? I'm going to put away the unclean. Now, this is actually a physical excommunication, a physical separating from the presence of God and the presence of God's people. There really is that kind of excommunication in a church court. And I would argue the first day of eternity will begin with a religious excommunication. With, with there will be two sets of people, they're going to be in two lines, and there will be an everlasting excommunication of the clean from the unclean. Am I not right with that? When King Christ comes back, he'll call everyone before him. The dead in Christ will rise first. Everybody else will rise after that. We'll be given bodies to sustain the eternal estate. We're going to stand before Judge Christ. 
and on the right will be uh, sheep, on the left will be goats, and the judge will judge. And then he'll say to the, to the believer, come ye who are blessed, uh, here is the kingdom prepared by your father for all eternity. And then he'll say to those on his left, what? Depart from me. That's excommunication. So remember, Augustine said the, 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 new, the new is in the old, but in seed form. And in, in the new, we can see the old, uh, it's in full bloom. You understand what I'm saying. Okay, I want to bring out the notion of why God sends away the unclean, because I think it's helpful. It's the holiness aspect. Um, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's easy to pick on the world, is it not? You can just easy say, oh, everything looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I will tell you, I'm 59 today. And I look around and I feel like I'm 159. Because if you had asked me 10 years ago, would be boys turning themselves into cats and girls marrying dogs and all of the other stuff that we do? Never. Never, never. I would never think this. Never. In fact, one of the last conversations I had with my dad when before he died was a former president got caught doing absolutely grotesque things. And I said, Dad, they got him dead to rights. They got him. They got him dead to rights. He's gone. And my dad and I said, yeah, he's gone. Nothing happened. Nothing. It's a blip. Walk in the park. Nothing. I think he went up a few points in the polls after that. The world is an unholy place filled with unholy people. The Bible says judgment begins first where? The household of God. So the believers, professing Christians, we can easily find professing unbelievers go, look at you, you're living like an unholy whatever. But this is to us. So we should, we should get, grasp the holiness of God and that we are called to a life of holiness. This is not works-based salvation, but we are called to a life of holiness. An unholy Christian is an oxymoron. Now, I know I'm open to the charge of being a legalist. I promise I'm not a legalist. Legalist is purchasing your own salvation with your own merit. I don't believe that. But we are, we are saved by God's grace, but to live holily. And if, if a person says, I am going to claim Christ and persistently and habitually live unholily, you will be excommunicated from God. We talked about man is inherent sinner, and now the sex, second section, excuse me, 5 through 10, what you see is the connection is this. Natural born, born sinners. You're, you're, you're born with a bent away from God and for sin. And then 5 to 10 actually says, now you're an actual sinner. So our little bitsies, I mentioned this maybe last week, our little bitsies, before they get big enough, they're little natural sinners, though they're not big enough cognitively or physically to commit actual sin, but you don't have to wait till they're that old until they can commit actual sin. I mean, I have four grandsons, and even when they're bitsies, bitsies, like little bitsies, they can still sin. But I mean like a two-day-old or a three-day-old. They can't actually sin, but they have the sin of Adam imputed to them. And the second section says, if you live long enough, you will be an actual sinner. So the sin of Adam imputed to us, we're natural-born sinners, and if we live long enough and grow big enough, we're going to be natural sinners. We're going to be sinners in our human-to-human relationships. That's what's going on. And, and then with the adulterous wife or the supposed adulterous wife, that's a species of that. Um, natural-born sinners are, are actual sinners. 
And the reason I think this is important to us to understand when we consider the business of excommunication of the unclean person, the sinner, who doesn't find forgiveness or cleansing in Christ, uh, in actual sin, uh, committing actual sin, is, is this reason. So I was not raised in a Bible believing like this kind of a church, like a, a Protestant, this kind of a church. And, and when I came to kind of these kind of things, I would hear people speak. We, every church speaks, they have their own Christianese. Do you know what I mean? Their own Baptists do it, Pentecostals do it, Presbyterians do it, I suppose. We have our own little lingo that we used. And one of the things that I heard that was new to me as a relatively new Bible person is God um, lo- loves the sinner and hates the what? Right, right. You, you hear this. God loves the sinner and hates the sinner. And I just heard that so much. I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know a lot. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. That guy knows more than me. I guess that that's true. Now, after a species, I, I could say, if I'm squinting my eyes, I could understand that in an orthodox or right fashion. However, sin is a law term. It's a moral concept. You can't have, you can't have law-breaking in the abstract. You have to have the moral agent. So there are, only two kind of, there are only two moral creatures on the planet, angels and human beings. We are the only two moral uh, age, creatures. Cats and dogs and elephants and unicorns are not moral creatures. Men and angels. And so sin is a law term. It's a moral term. And so the one you cannot have a murder without a murderer. So, so my difficulty with saying God loves the sin sinner and loves hates the sin to some degree, yes, that's true. For us, he, he had mercy on us. We are the sinners. He loved us and he cleansed us. So, so yes, rightly understood. However, using that phrase without proper explanation allows the person to be tempted to come to a wrong conclusion, which is, you know what? This is awesome. What a great deal. God will love me, the sinner. I get to go to heaven, enjoying my sin, and then he'll separate this, this uh, sin in the abstract from me. He'll just send murder and adultery and fornication and drunkenness away, but he'll take me as the fornicating drunkard and receive me in. Well, that's not true, beloved. That is not true. So when God excommunicates, he sends away, he doesn't send away the sin in abstract. He sends away the sinner. You see what I'm getting at? So you think, well, that's kind of frightening. I, it is kind of frightening. I, I know for a fact it's right. He is not sending away adultery in the abstract. When the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, there, there are lists in the Bible of the kind of folks that won't go to heaven. And one of the most famous lists is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. There are 10 things, eight or 10 things there, 10 kind of sinners. And I will tell you, in the list of folks that don't go to heaven, always in one, two, or three, almost always, one, two, or three will be porneia, the practice of porneia. And then moikeia, so one is sexual sin in, in a broad porneia. The other is moikeia, which is specifically uh, adultery, where you need a married party to be involved in this sexual uncleanness. And then there's another term for sensuous, which is you give yourself 
to these kind of things in a lustful way. It's always one, two, or three. And these kind of folks don't go to heaven. Um, and then within that is, um, oh, there is a, for homosexual offender, it's, it's, med, it's man and then bed, I think. Koita, koit, yes, right. Something like that. But nevertheless, these kind of things in these lists, it will say such and so will not inherit the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation, outside are the liars, outside are the dogs, meaning the male homosexuals, and so on and so on. So yes, does God love to save sinners? Yes, yes, we're here saying yes and amen. But be careful how people understand that he loves the sinner but hates the sin. If you die without being reconciled in Christ, it's not going to be the sin in theory that he punishes. It will be the moral agent that practices. That's the person that is separated. Does that make sense? And the other thing that, the reason I brought in this, um, the man is inherent sinner in verses 1 through 4, and then man is a practicing sinner in 5 through 10, is um, 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2 can be tricky. It says, we who are born again, we don't sin anymore. And you think, wait, <laughs> I sin against God, thought, word, and deed every day. I guess I'm not going to heaven. And then if you read 1 John 2, like 1 through 10, it's the person that's habitually living in sin that says something like this. This is awesome. Man, did I tell you I love this? There's no repentance. It's habitual. It's practiced. I'm living for this. There's no grief. There's no repentance. There's no turning to God in Christ. There's no pleading the Holy Spirit to help you. Those are two different creatures, two different people. One who hates sin, like, first, like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I do stuff I don't want to do. The stuff I want to do, I don't do. And then he says, oh God, who will deliver me from this body of sin. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. That's the Christian. We still sin, but we're not habitually living in it. So when we're talking about practicing religious separation in this excommunication of the habitual practicing sinner, the person that lives in sin, the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see God. So it's not a small deal. And God, like the leper, will separate you from himself and he will separate you from his people. Right now, the church, and I use, I'm using the church generically. I'm not meaning it denominationally. The church, professing Christians. Before Jesus Christ comes back, we're a mixed multitude. If you go to a church that says, you know what? Our church only has the elect people. Everybody in this church is on their way to he heaven 100%. There are no phony balonies here, no goats in this church. <laughs> you, need to, you need to run to the front door. You know why? Because they're mixing up a batch of Kool-Aid, and they're going to ask you, do you want punch-flavored or gr grape? And it's going to be David Koresh is going to be preaching. You need to run for the hills. So the church is a mixed multitude Jesus Christ has one guy who is the son of damnation, the son of perdition, meaning Judas, to teach us that even ministers can be unconverted. And what am I getting at? That right now, it is not possible to say, I only want, want to go to church where there are complete, 100% pure, I love Jesus, Bible-loving, sin-hating people. Well, you've got to die to get there. <laughs> but, but, there's coming a day when there will be that separation. So does God know the folks in the church who are the Apostle Peter that messes up, but he loves Jesus, and he's in heaven now, sitting next to a Judas that loved 30 pieces of silver and didn't love Jesus? Does he know? Yes. Do we always know? No. 
We don't. So the ultimate one that makes the excommunication separation is obviously King Christ. So these things are written for our instructions. Um, God will, as I say, separate the practicing uh, sinner. God talks about the inherent sin and then the practicing sin. And then the section from five all the way to the end, to the woman's strange ceremony, we see that God calls his people to be pure or holy in our man-to-man relationships. And actually he says, when any of my people commit unfaithfulness against the Lord, then he talks about making restitution to our fellow man, which means and this is an immediate breach of the second table of the law. So the way that the Protestants number the commandments are the first half of the commandments are one through four, our man's duty towards God, and then five through ten is man's duty towards his fellow man. So this is from honor father and mother to don't covet. God actually says, because he brings in the making recompense, he actually takes our sins that we commit against our fellow man as an offense against him, as unfaithfulness. Now, I can only imagine this. Um, I, next to Christ, my wife is my greatest gift on the planet. Um, and the Bible says to find an excellent wife is to find an excellent thing in her heart. He trusts in her all the days of his life. That's me for my wife. It, it, but, but God uses this phrase, when you sin against your fellow man, I take that as an act of adultery, unfaithfulness to me. I mean, it, if you... If you were a a spouse and your spouse committed adultery against you, what grief would you go through? It would almost probably make you physically sick. God says, it makes me physically sick. I'm taking your unfaithfulness to your fellow man as a species of unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery to me. Boy, what would we be? If we actually thought, you know, I'm about to do this sin here or not do this thing I'm required, sins of omission and commission. And we thought, God actually takes sin as a species of spiritual unfaithfulness. Boy, it would make us a, it would make us a holier people. But he talks about these things. And I want to bring in, when he separates the unclean from the clean, it requires to do a few it requires his people to do a few things and this gets us into the Matthew chapter 7 when the person has leprosy this is a, a Leviticus 13 and 14 he's supposed to go to the priest takes off his shirt or whatever his i don't know his running shorts and the priest is supposed to look at him and the priest is supposed to go yeah boy okay it's got the white hair it's got the boil yep you got leprosy off you go We're excommunicating you. You're unclean. Remember, that's teaching a spiritual thing. That means that the clean person has to be able to discern what is unclean. We, as God's people, have to be able to discern what is sin and what is holy in another person. And I don't mean against the Matthew chapter 7. I really do believe Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge Another person, but remember how it says in 7, 1 through 10, something like that, Matthew. Remember what Jesus says. If you have a big old log sin in your eye, don't go to your brother who has a little splinter sin in his eye and say, I'm here to help you out, brother, with that little splinter sin. What does he say? Take out the big old log sin and then help your brother. 
But then Jesus has this strange statement. Don't throw your pearls before what? Swine. Now pump the brakes. That means what? You have to know what your pearls are, which is gospel talent, gospel, holy things. Don't throw them before swine, that these are the people that are perpetually attacking you. You share Christ and all they do is rip you to shreds. And after a while you think, you know what? I'm not giving you the holy gospel for you to tear it. I've given it you a hundred times. You're not getting it a hundred and one. So that means you have to discern what is holy and what is a swine. So when Jesus says, thou shalt not judge, he means hypocritically, I'm living in sin. You should not live in sin. This is a Romans 1, Romans 2. I'm against that. God is against that. And hypersensoriously means wrongly. The whole Bible is a book of proper judgment. That's what the whole ceremonial law was about. What's clean? What's unclean? Can I eat this? Can I eat that? What's right? What's wrong? So when we're practicing this religiously separated life to separate unclean things from our affections, from our intellects, from our families, that requires us as believers to be able to know what's right from wrong, what's clean from unclean, what's sin and what's holy, and what would be the standard to teach us how to discern them. The Bible. The Bible. So this separation... um, it's not a racial separation. We, we read it this morning. I, I could do a whole sermon on this. I'd probably get myself fired for this sermon. Um, yeah. uh, should I even say it? No, I won't say it. Yes, I will. There's a view called kinism. And white folks have to stay with white folks and non-white folks get to go with non But everybody's specific. Kinism. It's obnoxious. Oh, do I hate this view. I mean, I get spit and mad, obviously. I mean, look at me and my wife. Obviously, I get mad. It's so unbiblical, I can't even take it. The Bible says in my text this morning, all people came from one man. We all have the same common folks. We all have two great-great-grandparents, and then we came from eight people on a boat. So, So this separation, people, I have heard some Christians, professing Christians, come up with some nutty ideas for this separation. And boy, howdy, I feel like I need to take a shower after I listen to them. This is not racial separation. It's not cultural separation. It's not even, I don't know, political affiliation to separation. (laughs) This is a religious separation. It's a sin separation. It's a separation unto holiness. And we have to be able to know what is this sin that I'm going to be separated from. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, something corrupts good morals. What corrupts good morals? Bad company. Does it mean I look down my snoot at you, you lousy? No, no, no. But will I give my children to be educated by a person that hates Jesus? Not me, I'm not doing it. Um, would I be sitting there listening to some guy give a lecture on why the Bible's not true? I forget the guy's name. Uh, Westminster West gave him the right foot of fellowship. No, not me. I'm not doing it. Why? Because bad company is going to corrupt good morals. And we're practicing that religious separation, if that makes sense. And I'm still for being active in the world. So there is this separation. It requires us to make proper religious judgments or discernments. Many, many years ago, an older woman, like way older, said to me one time when she was a younger woman, um, she was doing something that she shouldn't do, and she said to me, um, 
boy, I hope Jesus doesn't come back right now and see me right now. Well, Jesus sees you right now, whether he comes back or not. Living this religiously separated life requires us to be active and involved as Christians. We live in an anti-Christian world, and it it is not for the faint-hearted, and it will actually cost us something. Now, what are the reasons why these... Let's just take this excommunication, send away the unclean person. What are some reasons the Bible gives us for excommunicating the unclean sinner ceremonially here from the clean, made clean by the blood of Christ? What's the primary reason people here should separate this unclean person? What's the main reason? When you, my parents were kind of raised poor. I was raised in a working class home. They weren't very enlightened. I loved them. They, my dad had master's degrees and everything. So, but he was old school. If they told you to do something and you said why or anything, my mother was like Jackie Chan. You were getting it, the flying fist of fury. And then she was tiny, so it didn't hurt. And then my dad was going to come home and say, because I told you so. Now, I always hated that. (laughs) I always vowed that I would never say that to my children. Of course, we said it to our children. But when you come here, I already know Christians are going to object to this. Well, no, this seems so mean and unloving. That can't be right, Pastor John. I'm reading it. I did not write this. Separate the unclean from the clean. I didn't write it. So when we object to something which is clear, we may not understand it, but when we object, who's in the right and who's in the wrong? God says, do it. So the first reason why we send away is because God said to. And I don't mean to be overly simple. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. So there are a number, there are probably 20 passages in the New Testament that are excommunication passages. Um, Matthew chapter 18 is an excommunication. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I might quote that one. And then 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. These are classic passages. Eternity, as I said, the the Bible ends, the very book of Revelation ends with an excommunication, a separation of the clean from the unclean. And, and, And what makes us clean is to be found in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're made clean in him or to be outside of Christ. So we're not saying that inherently we are better people than the people that are unclean. No, we're the exact same. One is the recipient of the saving favor of God in Christ, and the other, heretofore, has not found forgiveness in Christ. And the reason I say heretofore is if you ever had seen me, I don't know, I'm 59 and I was converted at 26, you would have never thought this guy is about to be a Puritan, born-again, Christian, future Puritan minister. You would have said he probably should have his picture on the post office. That's what you have said. So Jesus is in the saving sinners business. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call and save sinners. So we can't ever look and go, you're probably going to hear depart. Don't ever say that. That's wrong. That's God's business. But the first reason that we obey is to vindicate the honor of God in Christ. He said so. And if in this business or in a New Testament excommunication, which is something which the church officially does, I'm sorry you're living in habitual sin and you won't stop. Putting someone out of the church, sending them away from the fellowship, 
It only occurs when there's contumacy. Contumacy is a fancy word for means stubbornness. Will you stop living in open sin? No, I will not. Will you please stop living in open? No, no, I will not. Please, please, please. No, I will not. Then you get to go live with the unbeliever. Why? Because you're professing yourself to be an unbeliever. Off you go. That's a 1 Corinthians 5. And so we do that because God says do it. Let's just say the Jews here said, you know what? It's my mom. It's my dad. I'm not doing it. When we see a clear command of God in the Bible, and we look God in the face and say, I am not doing this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God. You're going to have to lump it, God. What are we provoking God to do when we say to God, as my grandmother used to say, sinning with a high hand, when we say, I'm not doing it? What are we provoking God to do? Either chastise the believer or bring judgment on the unbeliever. That means the hammer's coming down. So the first reason we obey is because God said it, and we want to vindicate the honor of God in Christ. And the second reason we separate is to prevent the wrath of God from coming down upon the whole people of God. That's the negative. And then God routinely would say, and even to Moses, Moses, he said to Moses, I'll start over with you. I'm going to kill the whole lot of them because they're stubborn, but I'm going to stand, start, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you. And Moses stood in the breach and said, no, they're your people. And God said, okay, I'm going to take away my friendly presence. So not only do we provoke God if we disobey in this business, I'm not going to separate from the clean. I'm going to, I'm going to have fellowship with the unclean, excuse me. We not only tempt God to pour out his offended justice against the whole body, but we tempt him to take away his friendly presence. And there's a section in our confession, chapter 5, paragraph 5. God is omnipresent, he's omniscient, all of those things are true. But God can take away his smile from us. We can lose the warm affection of God, even if we're true children. It's like having a mom or a dad. You sin against your mom and dad, and the father or the mother withholds their affection from the child to make the child sad for their, their disobedience so that the child would come and be reconciled back to the parent. God can do that. So, one, to vindicate God in Christ. Two, to prevent God's displeasure upon the whole people of God. And then what about for the person? Let's just say, let's apply this spiritual, physical leprosy to something spiritual. Let, let's say you have, and it's easy, easy. I'll use immorality because this is easy. This is the First Corinthians chapter 5. Let's say in the Christian church, you have people that are, they're, they're, they're committing open, known acts of uncleanness. And everyone in the church knows it. And they're profusely telling everybody, I'm not even making this up. I'm not saying necessarily here, but I've been in lots of churches. And you're like, well, you're not married, and why are you living, and you're not supposed to live with the who and the who, and you're supposed to have a ring on it. You Thank you, Beyonce, or something. So what's going on here? And you say, you know what, we're not separating. We're, we're not separating. What can happen to the rest of the church? What can happen? The girl or boy sitting next to the girl or boy and says, the pastors and the elders know all this. Everybody knows this. They're talking about it. And it tempts what? It tempts the others. So I have a post for the Facebook post. 
one bad apple does what? This is the problem. And, and, and just sexual immorality is so easy. I'm just using it because it's an easy illustration. But the same is true for any kind of open known sin. And we, I see that you're unclean. I see that you're in your sin. You're habitual. You won't repent. You're going to live in it. And I know, I'm not doing what God says. I'm not putting you out. I'm not separating. I'm not. Well, then now you're in danger of infecting other, other Christians to live in the wrong way. And then one last thing, and then we'll quit, I promise. Let's just say the person's living in this kind of sin. And you don't do what God says. What are you not doing for them? What are you not doing for them? What are you not doing for them? I'll use a very brief homey example. Many years ago, I have two sisters, they're older or younger. My younger sister brought up um, gay folks. And she said, what do you think about... And she was setting me up. This, a lot of times questions of Christians are a setup. They, they don't, it's not a real question. It's a setup to call you a Nazi. And so I said, well, the Bible says thus and so, that Bible. You Nazi, you're a Nazi. You don't love the gay folks. You're a Nazi. And so I said, Heather, what did mom and dad say to me when I was a drunk laying in the bushes? What did they say? Enjoy your whiskey? They said, Stop. Why? Because they hated me? Because they love me. So if you don't say to a person, stop, you have to be separated. This is offensive to God and it's hurtful to you. If you say instead, enjoy. You don't love that person. You don't love that person. This business separating the clean from the unclean shows that we love God more than we love people, anybody. But it also shows we love people more than just this this temporal business. I'd rather have people offended, and I've had this happen. I'm leaving the church, Pastor. I can't believe you told me I don't get to do this thing that God says obnoxious that I love. I'm leaving. You're a legalist. You don't know the gospel. Off they go. I have no idea if God will take my godly counsel and convict them to drive them to the ram of atonement that they would be clean. So You see, beloved, this business of separating the clean from the unclean, it looks unloving. I can't really go there. I can't really say this. I can't really, who are you, you little whatever you are? But it's an act of love to the people because then they have the opportunity to think, well, this is displeasing to God and it's potentially harmful for me. Perhaps I can look to the one that will give forgiveness of sins like this person. Well, that's what I have for us tonight. Please pray for me for next week's sermon. But may God bless the preaching of his word.